This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Ree. Um, we're, we've been so looking forward to talking with you about Arrival. Um, now, you're, coming, you're uh, talking to us from the East Coast tonight, so that would be midnight for you, correct? Yes, it's a little bit of a late night, but um, I'm really excited to, to talk with you and everyone about the film. I hope you all uh, enjoyed it. So, you know, Arrival uh, sort of begins with a professorial uh, uh, daydream. Um, so say this happens to you, some military personnel walk into your office one day and ask you to listen to a mysterious recording that turns out to be some kind of alien language. Um, what are you feeling? Are you excited, terrified, skeptical? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think all of the above. I think I would be um, frightened, curious, uh, excited, um, frightened. Um, but I, I think um, whenever I watch the film, I'm always struck by Louise's composure in that moment. Um, I would like to imagine that I would be um, similarly composed, but to be honest, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think I would be, but um, yeah, but I'd like to imagine I would. <laughs> How about you? I'd be super excited. I'd be like, all right, let me grab my purse. I'm <laughs> I can see that. I mean, if someone ever asked this, uh, you know, of me for something like, hey, like, hey, Professor Ju, we're going to decipher dolphin. I'd be like, let me get my Dramamine. I'm getting on the boat. We are, we're ready. We're ready to go. Um, so, you know, it's really fun. And I, I think it's just exciting because so many science fiction films, um, you know, center scientists, but not always uh, humanists or language experts. And so for us, it's super refreshing to see this, see this um, in place. Um, now, we've both read the short story that Arrival is based on called uh, Story of Your Life. And this is my super flagged, well marked up volume. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Ted Chiang is a, is a short story expert. He mm. primarily writes short stories, sometimes novellas, and is really seen as a master of this uh, craft. Um, so I thought it might be helpful to talk about what are some of the differences that you noticed between the short story version and Arrival, uh, the film? Yeah, I love this genre question. Um, I think one of the things that was um, really interesting to me about the story is that it's I read it in, it's told completely in written language, right? Um, but it's, um, you know, uh, the English language, you know, I, I, as I was reading it and it was describing um, heptapod grammar or, you know, heptapod non-directional kind of um, uh, linguistic kind of um, uh, structures. I, I was so um, aware of how entrained I am in in, written English um, and the linearity of it, the left to right, top to bottom, directional, you know, a kind of reading practice. So in many ways, it made um, the, the heptapod language um, and the different grammatical structures seem really even more unfamiliar, right? Because I was experiencing English's, um, written English's linearity in such an embodied and cognitive way while I was reading about this other kind of language, right? So I think that was a really... Um, interesting uh, difference for me in terms of the, the film versus the story. And in terms of um, tone, I think uh, Louise is the narrator of the short story and her, her narrative, her, her character as, as the narrator is so specific and so um, 
delightful. Um, uh, we've talked about how um, there's a lot of humor, right? She, she's that that both demonstrates how sharp she is, as well as how kind of um, uh, how kind of wry she is at the same time. Uh, I think the 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 story really has a, a little bit more of a, a distinct um, separation between um, the kind of mem the personal narrative, the personal emotional narrative, the, the memories of the future with her daughter, um, and then these um, kind of um, at times dense kind of uh, discussions of linguistic science and physics. So the, the way that um, the story weaves uh, those two very distinct um, narratives together, I think in, is different in the story than it is in the, in the film. I think this film, um, in the film, they're a little bit smoother deliberately, right? Um, mm -hmm. they, they work together a little bit more smoothly, but I think there's a, a really um, an interesting kind of almost a kind of disjunction between um, uh, the two different um, narratives uh, in the story. But I think, um, yeah, and of course, uh, the in the story, the daughter dies um, in a climbing accident as opposed to a, a, in a fatal illness. I think that's a really significant difference, um, especially in, in relation to the way the, the story raises questions of free will versus determinism in terms of Louise, because um, even though she knows when her daughter is going to die and how her daughter is going to die, she does nothing to prevent her daughter from going climbing that day. So, um, but it's interesting because I think um, part of what that whole element does is, is in a way, it kind of um, suggests that in the story, free will and determinism aren't really as oppositional as they often are kind of conceived to be, because mm -hmm. the story is very clear that Louise chooses to make decisions in the present that replicate her memories of the future, right? So it's not like she just is doing them, right? But she actually makes a kind of deliberate choice. So I think that's a really complex uh, kind of rendering of that question that, that kind of, um, I think, uh, is elided by, by the film uh, because of the, the different yeah, modes of death. Right? Like, like she wants to make her memories true um yeah. right like yeah. almost make her memories true in some way um and so it's it's it, you know it's really complicated and i want to maybe go back to a point you were describing earlier about uh grammar uh yes. so you know a riveting question for the audience here we're going to be talking about grammar uh which is uh which you know has to do with um the the dimensionality of it so when i first read the story i was just blown away by its imagination mm -hmm. of a two-dimensional grammar but then i started reading yeah. some interviews with the author and he uh described a couple different analogies he said well uh you know musical scores have a two-dimensional grammar because it kind of matters mm -hmm. you know the space on the mm -hmm. page and uh so does uh sign language um so he imagined that if one were thinking with like truly thinking with sign language you know like just like you might dream in a foreign language when you mm. really get to know it um or if sign language is your first language um maybe one would reason not with an inner voice but with an inner pair of hands um oh how interesting yeah and i it, uh that sort of struck me as an an just, um, you know, not the reference point I was, I was necessarily um, expecting. Um, and of course, there's actually some fun watery connections with this too, because you can take sign language underwater and still maintain perfect ah. 
fluency. Um, yeah. There's this uh, group called Aqua Hands that um, is all about uh, taking um, those who are fluent in sign language or deaf underwater so that they can still communicate really, really well. Mm. Um, and when we look at the film, um, you know, the, the aliens are rendered with this kind of starfish palm. Exactly. Too. Yeah. So, yeah. And that was, I think, an homage to the way that in the story, the radial symmetry of the heptapods really matters. Mm-hmm. The characters sort of front and back. Um, and the justification in the story is that it's because, oh, they have radial symmetry. They're not like bilaterally symmetrical, uh, you know, beings. Um, so that one, so, so in the story, I feel like there's the starfish, but then in his commentary, it's like, oh, okay, he's thinking, he's thinking about, uh, sign language. Yeah. It's interesting to think about the, the translation then, because, um, I think one of the things that always strikes me about the story is how Louise always insists on using, uh, kind of anthropomorphic terms to describe the, the heptapods, like speaking, she always insists on saying, this is how they're speaking or, you know, um, as opposed Mm -hmm. to communicating, right? I think speech and communication are two very, very different things. And in fact, I think it's, it's uh, maybe um, interesting to think about how speech becomes kind of uh, the mode of communication that was less productive for them, uh, for for Louise to communicate with them, right? But she insists on using these terms that apply to humans, um, as opposed to kind of thinking about how, maybe they have their own kind of set of terms to describe very different kinds of practices, right? Um, But yeah, there's something, but those um, interviews that you just mentioned really, I think it it does, um, it resonates because I think there is a way that that throughout the story, um, the kind of difference between the two species, the human and heptapod species, there was a lot of there were a lot of ways that the story linguistically was was kind of bridging those two um, the bridging bridging the species difference. Um, mm-hmm. so that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, now thinking about the speech question too, right? Like it's really hard to emulate the sort of booming uh, heptapod speech. Um, maybe it sounds a little bit like a whale or an elephant. It's just you know yeah. very echoing, and the, the scale is different too. I think in the story, I. Um, never thought they were quite, the heptapods were quite that large, but also they send down the looking glasses to earth, but the heptapods are still in some ship in outer space. So we never get like the comparison of the bodies that we do, I think in the, the film. Um, but uh, moving on to this, this question of, um, you know, question of uh, bodies, embodiment, you know, another detail is that in the story, they, the name, the names that they give the heptapods are flapper and raspberry, <laughs> you know, a really different mode of humor than um, we get in the, the film where there's just sort of, a, you know, like the film is very somber, right? Like the colors are all yeah. sort of um, bluish um, to begin with and sort of muted. It's, it's mm-hmm. very dark. It was actually hard for me to rewatch on my um, computer screen in the middle uh, of the day. Yeah. Um, but uh, but in the mm-hmm. film, the heptapods are named Abbott and Costello. So this famous um, comedic pair, even though the film isn't um, maybe as actively trying to evoke a sense of humor. So, so I wanted to ask you about sense of humor. So, you know, sort of in the, the short story version, um, there's this off, you know, often play between the mother and the daughter. Um, and as, uh, as uh, Louise is remembering her daughter, a lot of the moments are, are um, 
comic. Uh, they're about some mother-daughter tension. And I was, I was wondering what you made of those or the way that you could almost see um, her, her jokes as dad jokes, even though she's the mom. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, <laughs> I love that idea about dad jokes in, in the story. Um, I know you've been thinking about this a lot. Can I can I ask you to maybe um, start and, and define dad jokes and then talk a little bit about um, how they play out in the story? I can define dad jokes, but I did flag one, so I'm going to go ahead and Wonderful. read it right now. Uh, so this is from well, actually, it doesn't matter where because the story jumps around temporarily anyway. Uh, but somewhere in the middle of the story. Um, there's a joke I once heard a comedian tell. It goes like this. I'm not sure if I'm ready to have children. I asked a friend of mine who has children, suppose I do have kids. What if when they grow up, they blame me for everything that's wrong with their lives? She laughed and said, what do you mean if? That's my favorite joke. And mm. so that's, well, this is Louise speaking. So that, you know, that's her, that's her favorite joke. Um, so, you know, there's something, and this is, uh, the end of one of the sections that, you know, we're talking about how they alternate. Um, I think there's something about punchlines, right? Like, so yeah. to tell a joke really well, you need to know the end and what's happening. So how similar is that to thinking in heptapod writing where you know, what's going to happen, um, and you actualize it anyway, um, how similar uh, yeah. is writing in heptapod to being an author who knows the end of the story? <laughs> writes to get it there. I love that. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about humor as well in terms of um, heptapod time, right? How does heptapod's nonlinear time kind of speak to the temporality of a joke? Um, so I, I think it would work differently for um, somebody who's telling the joke versus the, the person who is uh, listening to the joke, or in the case of dad jokes, often made to listen to the joke, right? Um, <laughs> so um, I think there... Um, you know, knowing the end of the joke ahead of time would kind of ruin the the experience of of the joke, right? It, at the, with the dad jokes, it's it's the kind of the punchline that always makes makes someone groan. Oh, that's you know so corny. That's so you know, and that's so um uh you know um uh not humorous, right? Uh, so you know, part one of the another major difference I think I see in the story um, is and this has everything to do with this question of humor for me, is, um, is the idea of the unknown. I think the story really kind of um, really makes sure to kind of um, leave the reader with the sense of the unknown in a way that the film doesn't. And, and um, in part, this is uh, because in the story, the reader never knows why the aliens came to Earth, right? In the film, um, that is made very, very clear, right? So in the story, that, that's not part of it. But I think there's, in the story uh, or in the film, it's, it's the description of why the aliens came to Earth. But it's also, for me, this moment when... Um, Louise uh, is able to read heptapod language and begins to experience heptapod time, it turns into a kind of mini superhero narrative in that moment, right? Where, when all of a sudden it 
it turns into this action sequence when she's running down the hall with the sat phone and, you know, she's being chased by, you know, um, various military personnel and there's a time limit, you know, that she's, so she's racing against the clock and she locks herself in a room in order to call General Shang, right? And, and what she's able to do is use her new superpower, right? Her kind of ability to see the future. Yeah. To save the world by kind of bringing everybody together, right? So <laughs> there was a really, you know, so for me, that really spoke to, um, a way that the film was in the film the the possibility of the unknowns really recedes it's really just about how louise has the ability to know everything right um uh but i think the story maintains that even though louise knows about her her future her daughter's future her her um her relationship with ian the ian character um mm-hmm. The, the film, the story still insists on um, the unknown as a really fundamental aspect of human experience in a way I think that the story doesn't or that the, that the film doesn't. So going back to the whole aspect of humor, I think the jokes in the story are a big part of making sure that the um, is another way of maintaining the, the uh, presence of the unknown, at least for the person who's meant to be listening to the joke. The yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there's also something about the unknown in, even if you know that something's going to happen, you don't necessarily know how you're going to feel when you get there. So for our students in the audience, think about your graduation from UCSD. You know what's going to happen, but what are you going to be feeling that day? Um, yeah. Are you going to be feeling really, really excited, really sad, a mixture? Um, it, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to say. And in the, the short story version, Story of Your Life, um, Louise actually ends on something similar too. She wonders if she'll be at um, sort of a minimum or maximum of um, joy or pain mm-hmm. um, when, um, you know, she like at different points in her her daughter's life. And I think that the jokes are somewhere where the, the joy comes out. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the, the pain is also, is sort of this undercurrent, um, just expecting that, um, you know, and having this foreknowledge that her, her daughter's not gonna, not going to, um, out, outlive her. Um, so, so I think there's um, something um, really pleasure. You know, we're, we're making a, a case here for you to please read the story. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. Uh, we're make, uh, there's something really interesting about the power of language to actualize or the, um, the unknown of what you're going to feel when you get to a certain yeah. moment that I think is also part of this, this um, bigger craft of, um, you know, getting to what's possible to know or not in the story that's very different yeah. from super, you know, superhero Louise compared <laughs> to, um, you know, the uh, uh, careful um, version of Louise with lots of humility that we, I think we find in the story. Yeah, and that's such a good point about the ending too, because the ending ends with Louise's uncertainty, right? The, the things that she still can't know, even though mm. she can see the future. Um, so I think in many ways, I think that's really, um, a, you know, a, a really significant aspect of the story. Mm-hmm. No, okay. So going back to one other thing with jokes too, you know, I was, I, when I was rewatching the film and, and as you were too, the, the daughter, I was looking for the, the moments of humor because mm. you know, the, overall the film is pretty somber, but in the, uh, the sort of introduction or the beginning montage, you know, we see her with her daughter playing, um, uh, you know, stick them up with my tickle fingers and yes. <laughs> around there. And so, so there's these, small moments but like I feel like the humor is really contained by that rather than mm. a little more um 
sort of inverse, but it also, but, but I thought there was something really smart that the cinematographers did there, which is if you see the, um, the, the horse um, around the waist of the, of the little girl, um, I had to, you know, sort of pause and go like, all right, how many appendages do we have here? Do we have seven? Is it close to heptapod? Because there's sort of a visual pattern of looking for sevens um, yeah. that you can go through and, and rewatch to see. Oh, um, you know, that makes me, um, wait, how many, uh, how many appendages were there? So there's the four legs of the horse, the head of the horse, the tail of the horse, and then her two arms. Um, so okay there you go um <laughs> wonderful sorry um so you know in terms of humor i was also when i was rereading the story i was also noticing that humor is not just uh, um a, a mode of emotional communication between louise and her daughter um but it's also uh, a mode of emotional communication and connection between her and the ian character who has a yeah. different name in the story but yeah. and and his his um so he actually there's yeah so so there's something very significant about I, I think in different ways he's often kind of um his humor is often embodied right it's often like a roll of the eyes or something so um there, there are different modes of, of humor but there's still um a form of communication no less sophisticated communication through humor too right because yeah. someone's sense of humor tells you a lot about how, yeah. how well you're going to get along with that person absolutely Actually, I'm glad you brought up Ian because a lot of, I feel like in the, at least the, let's see, in the story version, it's very different because Louise has already moved on. She hasn't, you know, she's um, with somebody else. So, mm -hmm. is, so is Ian. And mm -hmm. there's not this kind of grief over the future loss of that relationship. Whereas in the film, you know, uh, Louise is, she knows not only that she's going to lose her daughter, but that she's going to mm -hmm. um, break up with, break up with Ian too. Like those two, um, you know, come together. And so this, um, loss that is or like you could say departures that which is yeah. part of arrival is is also the loss of her um you know for sometimes significant other not just not just her daughter yeah absolutely you know um we were talking a little bit about um earlier about grief and you know i wanted to maybe ask you a question about this um so um so you know I, i'm really interested in the idea of um of what grief and mourning would look like in a heptapod time, right? Um, because uh, I thought it was interesting that um, in the story, um, even when she begins to experience time as heptapods would in this nonlinear way and um, uh, knowing the future um, in, the, in the present, um, loss and mourning still seem to function in the same way for her, right? Um, in a kind of deeply recognizably human way. Um, uh, as we would experience it in human time. So I, I was I was interested to hear maybe um, what that might suggest about the film's larger engagement with grief and loss. Yeah, so this is a great question. And I thought about it a lot, uh, especially after, you know, sort of taking, like being interested in the humor and the jokes question too, mm -hmm. because I think they actually share a similar temporality um, like the anticipatory grief, which is the expectation that a loss mm -hmm. is going to happen, um, actually operates in a similar way to um, the way that you might tell a story or tell a joke when you already know what's going to happen at the end. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we actually don't have a whole lot of access to heptapod time as an alterity that's different from human grief, because I think heptapod yeah. time 
is the time of human grief. Mm. Wow. And uh, the reason for that is it works both ways up and down the sort of stream of time, right? So if you're expecting, if you're expecting a loss, um, you know, this is what Louise has throughout the, the entire film. So her, uh, I guess you could say her consciousness of um, experiencing heptapod time coincides with anticipating the grief of her daughter. And in the film, it speeds up towards the end. We get more and more flash forwards as, uh, the, as the film progresses. Um, but uh, the time of grief and loss also goes the other direction too. So after the moment of um, grief and loss, one is always kind of experiencing the uh, sort of flashbacks to different moments from from one's life from from mm-hmm. that time it's patchy it's non-sequential um it's also unbidden um you don't know when uh like a grief trigger might might happen um mm-hmm. and we see i think we see that with louise but with her future memories like you never know in the process of studying heptopod kind of what's going to set off that um daydream of sorts for hers that's I, daydreams maybe a little too weak of a word because they're they're very uh, immediate and compelling and they they grab her they grab her attention yeah. and I and thought her it was emotions in her yeah. emotions yeah absolutely um with all the strength of a child um I yeah. was really interested in some of the lakeside moments with her daughter when the daughter's mm-hmm. like you know mom mom you know pay mm-hmm. attention to me and so mm-hmm. that's what kind of grabs grabs her or pulls her it's so interesting because in one of those moments, um, she describes her daughter as unstoppable. So it's wow. in many ways, I, I feel like the way you're describing um, the temporal structure of grief, it's also um, unstoppable. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I wouldn't have to think about that one more. But yeah, there's something um, not under conscious control of it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, for, um, for a film that's so interested in the, the other, the alien, um, yeah. here we get this, uh, portrayal of grief that turns out to be actually very similar, I think, to the human experience of, yeah. um, yeah, grief's temporality. Um, and, uh, on the question of alien, I wanted to sort of bounce them back to you as well. So, um, one of our, our colleagues at Northwestern University, uh, Michelle Huang, uh, is also very interested in Ted Chiang's fiction. Uh, and uh, she writes that it's common t- uh, in so much science fiction to, s- to, to see the alien as Asian. I mean, we see this in Ex Machina um, in a, like a kind of disturbing way. Um, and here we have um, this uh, in, uh, Asian American author who doesn't explicitly cast, you know, protagonists in this film as Asian, but he, in his fiction, he has a lot of interesting um, aliens. So I'm wondering um, what you made of, you know, the heptopods in this light, um, or in his other stories, even some of the other uh, characters that are mechanical beings, or um, in one case, uh, a parrot, um, like he really, mm. runs, you know, sort of runs this, this large um, range of characters that um, normally might be hard to understand. Um, one might even yeah. use the uh, sort of stereotype of inscrutable here, if if inscrutable means impossible to understand. Yeah. Um, so, so many of his fictions um, try to bridge that, right, and um, get to uh, this deep emotional um, or inner experience of something which would have been hard to understand. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting, um, because I think for me, it was interesting how um, there seemed to be a kind of connection of otherness between the heptopods, Louise, and General Shang. And um, that's right, yeah. 
So um, who is, I think, uh, the only Asian character in, in the film. Um, uh, and so I think when we first, um, when before Louise is enlisted to try to communicate with the heptapods, um, the film depicts her in, in various um, scenes as kind of alone and isolated from society, right? Um, even when she's in a space with other people, she's disconnected from them. And, um, and then um, the heptapods, of course, um, uh, they are kind of literally uh, embodying uh, the alien other um, in, in all of these different ways. And then um, I think um, when we first hear about General Shang, he is kind of um, described using these, these kind of orientalist tropes, I think. Um, but when in that crucial conversation between Louise and General Shang, um, they communicate in English, they communicate in Mandarin, I think, but, but more importantly, they communicate um, uh, on a kind of deeply personal and emotional register and through the shared kind of experience of grief and loss, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but that's another character I think that was othered, right, um, by the film. And so it's interesting too that, um, I think part of that kind of um, the, that shared otherness that the, these different characters um, have also is part of why they're able to communicate with each other in ways that other characters in the film aren't. Um, and General Shang um, actually has enough of a sense of heptapod time um, to, to intuit that in that crucial conversation, he should show um, Louise his phone number, he should divulge his wife's final words um, on her deathbed. Um, he, and he says, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I, I, I feel like I, I really have to, right? Um, so there's something about that, the, I think um, their shared otherness that, that allows them to be uh, kind of in more kind of um, uh, significant conversation or communication with each other somehow, right? Um, yeah, right. Like that's almost the, almost the precondition for the kind of curious or curiosity or openness, um, to begin to open to heptapod or to begin to open to each other. And I was also yeah. reminded of, um, the scene, one of the scenes where Ian and Louise are, are sort of chatting in the dark and the, like one of the military truck beds and, uh, Louise, um, and he is sort of joking around a little bit. And I think she says something like, just because you study communication or know it really well, doesn't mean you won't end up single. <laughs> so, <laughs> it sort of becomes flirtatious and is also um, the beginning of um, you know, like, hey, we're both loners, but um, you know, there's, there's something, some other, uh, I mean, they have this amazing shared experience of being sort of isolated in the military camp and then, um, yeah, trying to um, decipher uh, an alien language. So, I mean, pretty good bonding experience if you can, um, you know, listen, yeah. listen out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, for some reason, I always thought um, that Ian was a little bit less of an outsider in terms of how the film depicted him, even though he, he, the, the bond between um, him and Louise was so apparent and um, they clearly had, had a, were able to understand each other in ways, you know, very quickly, right? Um, uh, in part because I think Ian in the film really uh, more so than Louise um, kind of communicates through humor. So his kind of like gentle ribbing, even when they first met, right? I think was part of what kind of um, in, uh, kind of 
endeared, I don't know if endeared her to him, but, but I think created a, a kind of um, more of a sense of intimacy than they would have had otherwise. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's, huh. Um, yeah. Interesting. Hmm. So I also wanted to ask you a question um, about in relation to your book, which is uh, The Robotic Imaginary. It has a fabulous cover uh, to all the students in the audience. If you want to think really differently about robotics, please, you know, please, please check this out. It's, it's brilliant. Um, and uh, so you've written a lot about the labor of care uh, in relation to robotics. Um, what were some of the... Uh, you know, sort of aspects of care that you noticed in, in arrival, um, whether it's Louise's care for her daughter or other relationships of care, her be between her and the heptapods, mm. um, were there, were there aspects of, um, uh, care that kind of stood, stood out to you for someone who's thought about this, you know, very deeply, um, in relation to, um, to, uh, to the science and creation of robotics? Yeah, I think the thing that stands out to me the most in the film about care is um, Louisa's relationship with the heptapods um, mm -hmm. and not just the kind of emotional bond that grows, you know, that, that grew over time, but um, even in the act of kind of um, trying to communicate, um, uh, trying to, to learn from them and, and to teach them, right, um, to learn, trying to learn heptapod at the same time, trying to teach them uh, uh, the English language, um, teaching itself is a, a mode of care labor, right? So, um, so I think thinking about um, the way that Louise was um, teaching, uh, very much kind of uh, for me was was uh, I think one of the most significant depictions of a certain kind of care work, and um, from a disability uh, justice perspective, um, uh, care is uh, conceptualized as reciprocal. Um, so uh, I thought that was really fascinating how um, the care work of teaching um, uh, done by Louise um, was very much reciprocal because she, um, as she was teaching them English, they were teaching her heptapod. And in fact, Louise insisted on that reciprocity, right? She, she's because um, she wouldn't be able to learn their language or communicate with them otherwise, right? So I think the way that the film really emphasized the reciprocity of that relationship um, through a particular form of care work um, was really interesting um, as a way to think about um, the kind of care, uh, that care, forms of care that we might imagine. Do you feel like this was dramatized because the military didn't want to teach the heptapods anything, right? So there's like kind of a structuring framework of like, we actually don't want to have um like please limit your reciprocity we don't want to teach them anything by accident or um... right 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 that was that was that was such a big uh kind of um I guess narrative tension right um but yeah I I absolutely think that's right um but um Louise uh with all her gumption uh you know um kind of uh made it happen anyway so mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think I'm going to ask you um, one or two more questions and then we'll take a couple from the audience. Um, and uh, so let's do let's do maybe two. OK, so the, the first the first one is has to do with the aesthetics of the, the film. Um, hmm. So there's all this fog um, and the you know, the tones are very sort of muted, yeah. bluish, somber. 
Um, and the glass where we see the heptapods, you know, behind, it looks like a theater, right? So this is a very meta yes. sort of framing for, for encountering, um, encountering the aliens, you know, it's like sort of voila, there they are. And they, they go up through the, the anti-gravity chain, you know, sort of chamber of the, of the ship and, and, um, arrive there. So I, I was curious what you thought about the kind of cinematic aesthetics of, uh, you know, framing, um, uh, the, the aliens, and then also just about the, the role of water and inkiness, um, mm. throughout the, the film, like we see the, the heptapod, um, uh, writing appear as this kind of almost magnetic, like calligraphy yeah. ink that's, um, in circles, um, I'm not sure. I, do you remember how you imagined heptapod writing when you first read the story or did you read it after seeing the film? Cause I was, um, like, I didn't, you know, so I was excited about the film. I wasn't sure how they would render the, um, alien writing. I kind of want to ask the author next week, what, um, <laughs> you know, what his, his original ideas were, were for it too. But, um, yeah, I'm just curious what you, ex- uh, yeah, you thought of the writing and just also the, um, the watery, but also cinematic aesthetics. I don't think I imagined when I was reading the story, I don't think I imagined the the writing to be um, so um, uh, to, to, to dissipate uh, the way it did. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That even in the kind of um, even in the actual writing of the language, there was such a sense of um, ephemerality mm-hmm. that kind of, I don't know if it contrasts, you know, kind of um, uh, heptapod times kind of, um, you know, uh, more like kind of elastic sense of time, right? Um, but I, I think I was surprised by that. Uh, I thought it was beautiful. I, I really loved how it was rendered, um, but that's not what I, I think what I was expecting when I, I was reading the story. But in terms of the, um, the aesthetics of that very, that scene, the very slow, um, uh, but to me, very effective, affecting scene when, um, they first go into the the anti um, gravity um, space, and yeah. they get all turned around and um e- and even in that scene when um Louise is directly in you know the heptapod space, um I kept thinking about how disorientation was such a big part of the film. It seemed like such a central concept, right? And it was really kind of enacted in a very um, uh, specific way in that moment. And I know that you have written a lot about um, oceanic orientation. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that particular scene and the I idea of it. orientation disorientation. Oh, I loved it. I mean, I think there, there's so many moments in the film that give you give you a kind of uh, vertigo or yeah. almost nausea, like Ian's character throws up, you know, after he That's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, has experienced this like... Uh, 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 different sense of gravity. And he's mm-hmm. like, I think kind of the last one off the ladder too. And in and, and one of the scenes where he uh, looks back down, um, but of course it's not down anymore. It's to the side. Mm. Um, and when they finally get to the heptapods, they're sort of on the roof um, as opposed to uh, here. And uh, I think that the, the film um, just has a really nice play with orientation and gravity that echoes something that is more explicitly um, said in the story, which is that um, the heptapod writing can be read from any, any mm-hmm. orientation um, because they themselves are radially, radially symmetrical and can kind of orient in that way. And for me, what this really brought, um, you know, drew, drew importance to was the significance of the body as a source of knowledge. Um, because 
in, you know, maybe a more common scientific sense, like you know, knowledge pre-exists somewhere. It's in the cloud. It's not necessarily, well, I don't I hate to say grounded, but like it's it's not necessarily it's not necessarily materialized. But for all these linguists um, and the military personnel who come who come in and the tech team that assists them with all these screenshots, you know, of the of the heptapod writing to try to analyze it. Uh, they um, the people doing the work here, so like Louise and Ian, they physically have to go and demonstrate walking and mm -hmm. uh, reveal uh, reveal themselves from outside that you know terrible convention of the hazmat suit, <laughs> um, that, that super orange hazmat suit. So um, so I think that the process of learning heptapod draws attention to the way that um, embodiment matters for the. Um, for, for all kinds of knowledge. And, um, and, and that's, I think what really, really stuck, um, really stuck for me. That, I, I love that because, and I'm thinking about that moment when um, Louise is in the same physical space as um, Costello um, Abbott after Abbott passed away. Um, uh, and uh, Costello uh, writes something and she literally puts her hands in, in the ink. Right. So and that's after that is when she's the the um, the, the memories of the future really started speeding up. Right. Um, and um, in that moment, I, uh, I think Costello says, um, you know, Louise sees the future. Right. Essentially, um, it felt like a kind of uh, culminating step in the process of her really being able to kind of both read heptapod language and experience heptapod time. So I, I think. Um, yeah, but but yeah, the 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 movie really does kind of uh, only initiate that step after she comes into physical contact with the ink. I think maybe Costello should have said Louise feels the future. Oh, right, sort of like a braille or tactile yes uh, sense, right? Like that has some um, uh, comprehension. <laughs> I love that comprehension of the future. Um, cause prehension, right. It's like your ability to kind of grab something mm. and apprehension. You're nervous about the, mm. what you're grabbing and then comprehension, you're, uh, understanding it in some way. So there's something about the tactile really throughout yeah. is I think very visually poetic in the film, but then in the story, you just have, um, I think more conceptual attention to the importance of, um, uh, yeah, having a body for, for any kind of knowledge and, Writing is the one place that can kind of meet halfway in between because, mm. right, the verbal speech is hard to replicate through the kind of raspberry sound, um, but the uh, or echoey sound in, in the case of the the arrival of the film. Um, but uh, writing is somewhere they can meet meet halfway. Um, but even the the limits of of being able to communicate through their respective you know spoken languages was because of their difference in their physiologies, right? Um, so again, it comes down to the body. And how the body is the site of knowledge. Mm -hmm. so. Wow, that's great. It's always a fun question to talk about. <laughs> now, I'll ask you one more question, and then we'll take a, a couple from the audience that I, I uh, have been I have been texted. So you know we've got these on hand. Um, now you know sort of one one irony of the film that's quite bittersweet is that it's called Arrival, but it's all yeah. about departures, the departures of the heptapods. Yeah. the departure of the daughter and of Ian, um, mm. you know, ultimately from Louise's life. Um, but much of this is foreshadowed at the beginning, um, especially the, the um, loss of the daughter. Um, so, so I did want to ask you, you know, we, we already know the end. 
why do we keep watching anyway? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I think one of the things the film, I think, might suggest is that um, arrivals and departures may not be the most important moments, right? So uh, the mm -hmm. time between an arrival and, and a departure is not just the mean time, but perhaps is perhaps the most significant time. Um, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I, I taught this class um, this semester in my speculative futures class. Um, uh, and my students were um, talking about how different it was to watch the film for the first time versus rewatch the film, right? If you already knew what happened. Um, and going back, something like the opening montage of, of the scenes of the daughter's uh, life, um, they they hit in a very, very different way. Um, if you know, if you already know what happens, right? They, they become much more resonant when you know that those are actually Louise's future memories and not uh, a past, right? Mm. Uh, so I think in many ways, um, uh, you know, knowing, knowing about that, knowing what happens, um, I think, I think, first of all, I think then the film's attempt to represent the structure of heptapod time becomes a lot clearer. And I appreciate it so much more. All of the very kind of um, elegant kind of uh, um, kind of editing choices and kind of narrative uh, choices about narrative structure. Um, I think um, in a lot of ways, this question is similar to Louise's own relationship to heptapod time, right? Um, so, um, and, and, and her relationship to, you know, proceeding with her life with her, with Ian, with her daughter, despite knowing how, these very important people to her will depart from her life at a certain point. So I think in that sense, for the spectator who's rewatching the film versus watching it for the first time, um, I think knowing what will happen in the film in advance actually enhances the emotional and aesthetic experience of the film rather than decreases it. So yeah, I think it, it's a kind of heptapod temporal temporality, you know, of, of watching as rewatching the film. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Watching as rewatching, which is also, um, reminds me of another moment in this in this, uh, this short story version where Louise is reading a bedtime story to her daughter and she changes the ending on her and her daughter goes that's not how it goes <laughs> and uh, and then her mom asks her specifically like well um, you know the ending why do I have to read it to you? and she's like I just want to hear it anyway yeah. um, so I think that you know maybe arrival aspires to the level of the beloved bedtime story um, yeah. in in some some sense. Um, okay, That's now I'm, uh, I've acquired a few audience questions for, um, for you to consider. Miguel asks if you can discuss the cinematic ways that nonlinearity is uh, visualized mm -hmm. or conveyed. Oh, uh, I love that question. Um, so for me, it was largely in, um, in addition to um, the, I th for me, incredible kind of uh, aesthetic achievement of the heptapod language itself, um, uh, which is quite exquisite um, visually, I think, and conceptually. Um, I think it was in the editing, right? Um, so as a, in terms of the cinematic techniques, it was the way that, you know, the kind of proleptic kind of flash forwards would, would be intercut with, um, uh, with uh, kind of Louise's kind of experience of the present. So for me, it was largely through the, through the editing techniques and, and choices. Mm -hmm. so. How about you, Professor Ju? Um, what did you think? That's great. Um, you know, I thought there were also some smart ways. I mentioned um, the the way that the horse um, costume around the daughter was, you know, circular. But 
Another part I noticed too is that on the campus, there are a couple really smart shots where there is a circle and then seven mm -hmm. spokes coming from mm -hmm. the, the wheel uh, as well. So I think if like a careful viewer could, could look and see also um, the way that, um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, composition or um, environmental elements of um, some of the shots was also uh, very much circular. So not just the, you know, uh, the way that heptapod writing was visualized as a kind of calligraphy circle, but but also in in um, in in those moments too. And you know, I think I think there's um, nonlinearity, but there's also you know we we're, we were talking about gravity as well. Mm -hmm. I think that floating <laughs> yeah. is kind of a nice way to get off the line. Um, mm -hmm. And so the moments where Louise, uh, the mo the one moment where Louise uh, goes in the the alien shuttle of sorts to go go meet them and have her her contact moment. Um, looks a lot like floating what they did to her hair, but I don't yeah. think the camera follows her because the camera sounds like it's behind glass. So I think she goes, but I don't think the camera goes. I think. Oh, interesting. That's really interesting. If huh. you just pay attention to the sound. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Um, looks like we have a few more here. Uh, Courtney Poon wonders if you could talk more, oh, about the significance of the bird and particularly oh, whether yes. it also appears in the story. Oh, I believe the bird appears in the story. Um, do you remember um, precisely? I actually don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but I think it did, but I, I can't remember clearly. Um, I agree that the bird is so, um, uh, is such an interesting presence. Uh, not remarked on upon, uh, uh, but you know the canary in the coal mine, right? Um, in a way, this is um, the 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 bird's function was to serve as a future warning, right? A kind of uh, acquired through its own embodied knowledge of whether the atmosphere was um, breathable, right, uh, or safe for uh, for um, I guess. Um, living beings or certain kinds of living beings um, in that space. So um, I think in, in another, it was another mode of that kind of, um, of thinking about um, the way that the future and the present in the, the film kind of these moments where it's collapsed, right? Mm. Because the bird would experience the, 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 if the danger, the air got danger, became more dangerous uh, before humans would. So it's like being used as the kind of barometer or uh, technology, but mm. um, even more precise, I think, than those because it can't fail. Like it's going to tell you yeah. if it's not happy, if it's like struggling, yeah. um, or not. And so in that way, it's it's also like deeply predictive. Uh, yeah, think. yeah, it's so interesting because I think, unlike a lot of um, uh, Ted Chiang's stories. Um, the technologies in that are examined in this story are very kind of um, lo-fi, right? They're not kind of um, elaborate kind of futuristic kind of technologies, but language, birds as alarms, right? There, there's something very, very different about the, the technologies that are, um, uh, that are being explored in this film. And so I, I really appreciate this as a as an interesting departure from a lot of his other stories about technology. 
I think that's a the great point. And maybe the other story I would uh, constellate with this one um, that does relate to birds is the great silence, uh, oh, which yes. is about six pages. Uh, <laughs> and he wrote it as a response or a provocation or invitation really to two artists who were creating this film about the, uh, the, uh, Puerto Rican gray parrot and mm. um, the way that it was about it, it, it its status as an endangered species. So mm. he writes this story from the point of view of the parrot, wondering why humans are taking all this effort to go listen for extraterrestrials, um, including through structures like the Arecibo mm. telescope, which was was located in um, in uh, Puerto Rico until its uh, collapse actually just um, a year or two ago, and. Uh, it wonders why aren't, why aren't you listening to the parrots? The parrots are incredibly intelligent. We're you know we're here and we have oral culture. Like why not try to listen harder to the parrots? And so uh, I think that's I mean maybe to connect this up with um, your observation about low technologies, you could say the parrot also is an underappreciated <laughs> example of um, this uh, you know possible communicator that maybe hasn't garnered as much attention as more glamorous, um, technically, uh, let's say sources of sound that um, we develop these elaborate technologies to try to try to listen to. Um, and it, isn't it the absence of the birds chirping that would alert um, people to a problem, right? So it's mm -hmm. not the alarm going off, it's, it's, it's when it stops that it becomes a problem. So it, in various scenes in the film, we hear the the bird in the background, right? Um, but it's interesting to think about this idea of, you know, oral cultures because um, at, in the story, and as I understood it in the film, Louise is telling this sto story uh, to her daughter, right? Um, through a mode of oral communication, not written communication. Right? So it's interesting that the story that's so much about her learning a, a new written language then kind of comes back to um, uh, oral communication. I think that's great. Yeah, also echoed by the by the uh, way that um, she, uh, yeah, is, is uh, I mean, even the small example I already brought up of uh, telling her daughter a bedtime story. That's yeah. an awesome example of um, sort of mediating between, um, yeah, between the two modes. But even speaking itself, that's the hard one, right? Because that's linear. It's, yes. it's, a, it's a medium yes. that's experienced in time. Um, and we all know from trying to skip around podcasts, like that's actually really hard to do. <laughs> it doesn't always, always make yes. sense. So the, the writing yes. is what affords being able to skip, jump um, in time. Go backwards. Go backwards. Yeah. Everyone. yeah. yeah. Hmm. Huh. So I think we're at 10 o'clock right now, but thank you so much for your time and, um, and uh, for staying up till one o'clock East Coast uh, to be with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. The joy was absolutely reciprocal. Um, and I really appreciate um, uh, this wonderful conversation and everybody who watched the film and uh, thought with us, with us about the film. So. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.